Hello, my name is Benjamin Gu, and I am the founder and president of Coffee with a Christian. Thanks for checking out the podcast. Before we get started today, I just wanted to give a brief shout out to the Stoller Foundation. This amazing organization was started by Jerry Stoller. Jerry was able to revolutionize the agriculture industry by finding ways to help good things grow. That's why a foundation he started incubates and accelerates nonprofits that are focused on evangelism and volunteerism in order to serve as a launchpad for nonprofits with innovative and creative ideas to address the needs of the community with the love of Christ. Learn more at stollerfoundation.org. For this month's podcast, I'd like to present you with a brief conversation that I had with a young man that I met attending church here in Richmond, Virginia, just a few months ago. He grew up in the Richmond area, and I just sat down with him to get his thoughts regarding the whole BLM, COVID-19, economic crisis going on in the country at the moment. My conversation with Raishan in the previous episode was typical for the average young BLM activist. I believe that my conversation with this young man might demonstrate normal views for a young white male Christian. All that said, let's get on with the show. So my name is Benjamin Gu, and this is Coffee with a Christian. I'm joined here today with a friend from church. And um, he's here to just talk about how COVID-19, his background, um, the whole BLM movement in this country have kind of just been affecting his life, his friendships. um, Yeah. And uh, how his faith interacts with all that. So thanks for joining me here today. Absolutely. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? So I have been in Richmond for a long time. Originally uh, born in L.A. I like to tell people that because it makes me seem, you know, cool. And then... um, when I was very young, my social worker slash missionary parents ran out of money, so came to live with grandma and was essentially raised in Richmond till now with stints in Newport News for college and Atlanta as well. And uh, yeah, now I'm in here, Richmond, uh, locked down with COVID and uh, COVID has been such a disruption from my life. Luckily, my work was previously remote already, so I worked as a in the IT side, reporting side for healthcare insurance company, one of those nerds. So it, it didn't affect that too much. I um, just stayed more at home and am able to spend time more with my girlfriend. But yeah, friends, hanging out with friends has been, you know, COVID-like. Yeah. It's been very dry COVID stuff. <laughs> I think that's the best way to portray it. Um, but things are getting better. Um, my father is so scared of giving COVID. It's pretty hilarious. So when we do interact with him, we do a full on isolation, 10 feet apart. And we do not breathe the same air at all. Luckily we don't wear masks because we sit far enough apart, but we don't touch any of the same stuff. Uh, it's been pretty normal COVID wise. Luckily I'm not a teacher or no one that is in the healthcare field, though I'm in healthcare insurance. I don't have to deal with any of those things, or I'm not working in retail, which is those people are soldiers out there in the fight of COVID, for sure. And then, of course, we had the protests, well, the riots and protests in Richmond, um, which, you know, gave us more stuff to do during the time of COVID, to have more things to bring up, right? Um, well, we got all this free time on our hands, so we should <laughs> get to, to work on it, right? You know, a lot has already happened. We've already gotten all the, well, uh, city of Richmond-owned monuments down. Um, not two that are from the state, which are the Lee Monument. I think there's one more that's actually state-owned, but I'm not sure. Or it's Henrico, but we'll call that the mystery statue. Okay. You, you mentioned the, the, uh, 
the protests and the riots and, um, you know, all the stuff surrounding that. How has any of that impacted your life? Yes, protests. Well, luckily I'm not in the city itself. I'm in a neighborhood outside of it, um, in Northside. We did see protests mm. and all that good stuff, but we're never in, like, downtown Monument Avenue, nothing like that. Um, so we didn't see necessarily any protesting or any riot or violence via anarchists or what, whoever incites violence and uh, property damage and robbery. Of course, there's always tensions and sort of tea time and dinner time conversation, you know, in this, um, this you know, in Richmond itself. Because Richmond, we're an interesting place. We actually are very politically diverse. We are... Yeah, it's a really purple city. You've got uh, the blue Democrats and a lot of red Republicans uh, all living in the same space, interacting with each other, um, you know, trying to be, you know, civil, polite, get along. Well, most, pe- most people are trying to get along. Like you said, it's so purple. And because of that, there is, um, yeah, you don't necessarily, you just act as non-political as you can, I guess. Well, not till now. Um, which now, of course, in this diversity of politics, now comes greater chaos. And it's unfortunate that we have a issue that has become so political that is race. Race has been politicized. And every time it is politicized, it ends poorly. Now, you mentioned race a few times. What does race mean to you? Yeah, definitions. How do I define race? It's it's been kind of free-floating around a lot, hasn't it? I Mm -hmm. feel like uh, the word race has been thrown around a whole lot recently, and no one's bothered to actually define it or draw some lines around it. Um, And I I feel like just that lack of clarity has really muddied the waters. Um, So maybe a a more poignant question might be, like, uh, what what does racism mean to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like how you said how race has um, yeah, defined it differently. Racism and the word race also is defined differently. I've heard that there actually is no, there are no races. There's only one race, and that's the human race, mm-hmm. and that there are only ethnicities. And then everyone else says, you know, this is, there are races. And like you fill out federal documentation or documentation sent to the government, mm-hmm. you fill out a race blank of whatever you are. Yeah, U.S. Census. Yeah, in the census, there you go. Um, which I, di- I didn't remember if they said ethnicity or race. Did they say race in that? I don't know. It's, it's, typically it gets labeled one or the other, race or ethnicity. Um, yeah. It's, it's all, it's all uh, the eye of the beholder. With race, I can use race and ethnicity interchangeably because people use them interchangeably. So, um, And with that being said, racism, where you know, um, the first gut reaction I have and I feel like a lot of people used to have, though that's changing, was that racism was when you preferred and, you know, preferred and uplifted one race over others or maybe a select few races or however many races you want to uplift and say that these races are preferred to a, the other races that exist on Earth or other ethnicities. And those are preferential and received preferential treatment yeah, it's like there's a negative and there's a positive, right? So yeah. it's like one group or ethnicity 
um, either prefers its own or prefers you know group different groups in different ways, or on a negative side, it can put down other groups, devalue other groups because they are not included within their own group or because they have a bias against them. And I think it's it's interesting because it's it's like we talk about race and ethnicity. And I've even heard the phrase cultural heritage. I don't know if any of them are appropriate, like, at all. From a genes perspective, like, there is only one race. If you go cultural heritage, then using the word white is really discriminatory because it's, you know, Polish people are very different than Lithuanians, than German, than Russian, than English, than French, than... And there's a lot of nuance there, right? Um, and, but when you go to fill out the census, it typically just says white. And there's a lot of countries in Africa. There's a lot of countries in Asia. There's a lot of countries uh, in the Pacific, in South America. Honestly, it, it's quite a mixed bag. And uh, cultural heritage doesn't seem to, to really fit the bill just because it's, it's almost like you've, you've uh, put too many boxes out there so that the boxes okay. lose their meaning. Yeah, and that cultural heritage is such a, that makes the definition even more, uh, not arbitrary, but amalgamous, where you could, man, you could define that so many different ways. You could just change that around. Like, well, my cultural heritage is of the upper class of, of America. So yeah. actually, my cultural ancestry is, you know, rich American. Yeah. So, and yeah. I'm not saying that I am that, because I'm not, but <laughs> well, someone could say when, when people ask me this question, I always feel like a complete outsider because we're all say, you know, I identify as, as American because I'm, I'm part Chinese and part Japanese and part Hawaiian and part Irish and part Scottish and English and French and Dutch. You know, where else would all those different people groups meet but America? And, you know, I've been told to go back Truth. to my country, but... You know, it's like, how do you, you just want to, like, cut me up and ship me off in different different pieces? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, whose side are you going to be on, Ben? <laughs> yeah, but you got to pick one of the ten of <laughs> the things that you are. Uh, uh, yeah, it's so funny how to, how to define that. I know there was a recent talk on Kamala Harris. Uh, there was, my friend told me this. She, because she isn't of African ancestry, she's not black because she's actually, her ancestry is from the islands. I believe from, I forgot which, like tropical-ish islands, maybe Caribbean. Um, but because of that, they were saying she's actually not black. Uh, and my friend who's, who calls himself black and identifies so, but is from the islands, uh, is very insulted by that. So he's uh, pretty up in arms by that. You know, it's like, how do you define, we can't even agree on what, what a race is or what what black is what white is you know if yeah. you're mixed like you just said if you're mixed you know what you're well you're light-skinned so it, it's it, the mathematics is going to be so difficult to cal calculate you know how black you are or, or how white you are and therefore like how to define you and how much privilege you've had in your life and how not much non-privilege it's you know it's the possibilities are endless i mean yeah <laughs> we could really <laughs> encourage people to start learning uh multi-vector calculus and you know yes. just to, so that we can figure out what, what ethnic minority you you must identify with and yeah your, your uh, privilege percentage 
That's true. I mean, I would love that. That's so fun. I, uh, those are simple calculators they put on Facebook. You know, you get to find out, you know, how much, um, I guess, privilege you have or how much, you know, oppression you've experienced. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to, as those evolve, I'm sure they will, and we'll, we'll see more of that. And I'm pretty sure I'm in uh, Slytherin when I think. <laughs> <laughs> have you, as a white person, have you ever had any experiences with racism? Uh, yeah, good question. Uh, depends on how you define racism, I guess. Um, if, you know, racism is defined as, you know, the systemic oppression of, you know, of one minorities, race, yeah. yeah, of some minority, or I guess not, or majority, majorities in the case of South Africa. Um, that was a systemic oppression of a majority. Uh, I, I have not been systemically oppressed due to my white race, I guess, but I could, you could argue I've been systemically oppressed for other attributes of myself. Hmm. Um, uh, I don't think race has systemically oppressed me. Um, have, how about this? Has anybody ever treated you differently because of the color of your skin? Right. The other definition of racism, which is, you know, <laughs> uh, being cruel or mean to you based on the color of your skin. Um, Yes, I have experienced racial injury in that I've been treated d differently in a negative way. I have, you know, in elementary school, in middle school, and even in, uh, coming into high school, I, uh, I had, like, good friends. And I've told you this before, but I've, I had, my best friend was black growing up in elementary school, and I had many good friends that were black in elementary school and going on into middle, but sometime in, say, seventh grade, all of a sudden they stopped talking to me. And when I would approach them, they would all hang out with everyone that was black. It was all the black kids at the one table in the cafeteria and everyone else of different ethnicities elsewhere. Uh, you didn't really find any difference there. There was always the monogamous race groupings like that. And when I did approach them, they just didn't talk to me. They just would give one-word answers, and I didn't know why, and that was... That was painful, not knowing why, and it just it just happened. Um, that is a result of of I believe racial injury or racism, whatever you would want to call it. And it's sad. And the the reason being, I can only imagine now, looking back, that they were taught and were taught through their parents or through other people in their community, family, and they also maybe experienced things that made them think, you know. We better stick together, us and our own ethnicity, our own race, because, you know, other races are dangerous. Um, they're not out to protect us. They're, we're going to get hurt in some way by other people. So they were just doing that out of uh, trained protection or experiential you know, experiences where they decided to protect themselves. So that's the only reason I could have thought why. Should, should that have happened? No, because... Racism shouldn't happen at any level. No person should experience racism. No one should. As, you know, that community of black individuals in my elementary school, middle school, and high school, they should not have, but they did. And no one else should experience racism as a result. Otherwise, the cycle keeps going. You hurt one race, you start to hate one race and then are cruel to them and then that race is then cruel back or cruel to another race or even cruel to themselves and it continues on where we begin to truly define ourselves by our race and define ourselves completely and utterly by our differences without 
equalizing it and balancing it out with our other many attributes. It's so unfortunate to whittle us down and define us by one thing, um, which is why group politics is so difficult for me, identity politics. Tell me what you mean by identity politics, because I know there are going to be a lot of people who listen to this that maybe don't understand what that means. Absolutely. So what I have think I understand identity politics as is from whatever identity or attribute that you have about yourself and then make that a defining factor in political decisions. Example is race. So I am a, you know, if I'm a Hispanic, how politics can help the Hispanic race as a whole or how politics, if I'm white, help the white race as a whole is identity. And that making your, your really your sole reason for political discourse and political opinion rather than the myriad of other attributes and factors that are involved in this world, you become almost a single-issue single issue voter, single-issue politician. So kind of like subverting personal identity to a demographic identity. Yeah, yeah, you become, like you said, you become a part of the whole. You become a demographic, you become a group first and foremost, and then you're your personal or individual identity has become secondary to that, to the group, which is contrary or, sorry, the antithesis, say, of the, you know, pro-individualists, mm. which you typically see on the conservative or right side of the spectrum. Where do you think people's identity should be found? I think that our identity and how we should view ourselves... Um, should we talk about Christianity in here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, why not? That's a good call. I've never done that on the radio. Cancel Christians. We're already canceled. We can't <laughs> get more canceled. <laughs> um, so uh, so I, I do believe that your identity should be found in um, a higher power. Hmm. I believe your identity should be found in, in God is, is how you are actually defined. Now, that is a very big statement, and that will take several more hours to discuss. But <laughs> Christian identity. Yeah. 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 Let's go Christian. I'm, I'm down with Christian. Or God-centered, or higher power-centered, or For maybe sure. like the Greeks would call it like, a, uh, like an ideas kind of, um, kind of identity. Identity was wrapped up in... A lot of different things, but mainly the uh, identity was wrapped up in ideas. Um, I think it was either Plato or uh, Socrates that was talking about how, like, there's a million different ways to make a chair, right? You can make it out of wood, stone, metal. You can put a nice seat on it. You can put no seat on it. You can put a bad seat on it. You can put it in a car or you can put it on a plane or you can put it in your living room but yeah. the idea of a seat is the real object because it never changes and the actual chair that you build out in the physical world is the lesser chair because it's only one form of a greater idea that mm -hmm. has infinite forms yeah and so they try to base identity less on the manifestation of that idea and more of the idea of itself. Does that make sense? It does. And uh, 
and it, and that seems practical. I mean, it absolutely makes sense psychologically. I don't know how that plays out in in thinking that the idea is that you have in your mind is greater than the actual you know manifestation of the myriad of forms of the idea. So I think maybe a good example of that for human identity would be to say that someone is a just or a fair person, hmm. right? And so it's not like they did this one thing and now they're just forever, but it's kind of like they're, that justice that they seek in their lives will manifest itself in different ways. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. kind of the idea being that um, that person is someone who seeks justice or seeks fairness or on the converse side, somebody who's like, you know, seeking to hurt other people, like a, like a hateful person, right? Yeah. Um, or a malicious person or, or an angry person. The idea that these people don't have ideas, the ideas have the people. And oh, yeah. Ideological possession, the idea. Yeah. That is a frightening idea in itself that your ideas have you more than you have your, your ideas. That's very scary. And uh, I think we're seeing that more now than ever. <laughs> Which yeah, is, which is why we're afraid to talk, or I'm almost hesitant to share my ideas. Yeah, there's a lot of um, angry, hurt people out there, and hurt people hurt people, uh, as the saying often goes. And uh, you know, it's a it's a really weird time, and it's a lot that's not going right in the world. Yeah, there isn't for sure, um, but hopefully, the solution being, hopefully we somehow break the bonds to ideological possession uh, on all sides where or we get better ideas <laughs> and then we just <laughs> cling to those <laughs> no no and we have you know like i mean i i think that that is because uh, so getting rid of like bad ideas right and getting rid i feel like that's a very eastern approach is like to <laughs> cleanse yourself of the like Let empty yourself right whereas like <laughs> I'd say a very Christian approach would be instead you, you put on new ideas. You put on Christ. You put on love and patience and kindness and, and goodness. Mm -hmm. So the, the solution to identity politics isn't to just ditch the bad ideas. That's not enough because we're really good at having bad ideas. And so maybe the correct solution to that is then to find ideas that actually are fixing windows rather than throwing bricks through them. Yeah, absolutely. And finding identity in those better ideas, for sure. Like you mentioned, Christ, you know. Maybe, I mean, ideally, you and I both agree, they would have be ideologically possessed to, you know, follow Christ. Like, yes. I mean, that's, that's the thing that you should be possessed by. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I feel like that's the perfect example because it's like what he lays down his life for his, his friends and his enemies you know, to show God's love right. to them, right? Yeah, I like that because he's in that ideological possession of Christ. You're actually not, you know, anti other ideologies. You're not trying to destroy other ones because you're supposed to pray and help your enemies. Um, so it's almost like a an ideological possession that's like anti ideological possession. So that seems like the right approach, personally. But <laughs> of course, Christians have been canceled, so. We can't really do anything. <laughs> That's all right. We'll just we'll just retake canceled. You know, <laughs> yeah. 
here's the thing is like cancel culture is going to get so bad that it's going to start canceling more and more people and we'll just pick up their scraps you know yeah we'll pick up all the canceled <laughs> and then by yeah, the end, you know and then all the people who do the canceling there'll only be like five percent left of those guys and they can have it themselves <laughs> and we'll we the canceled 95 we can uh you know we can get along with each other for sure i like that retake canceled that's excellent yeah. uh i'm i'm definitely pro that yeah i think that this is the that is the right approach um but like taking that to a a practical means i guess just talking with people and is the best approach in trying to smooth out maybe ideological possession i guess a, a exposing them to just all the different ideas out there and the different experiences one can have in a peaceful way, like nice mm. people out there that are, you know, maybe conservative, conservatives or nice people that are Democrats that mm -hmm. aren't simply just hateful people, whether you hate white people or you hate, uh, say, minorities or you hate Christians. Or you hate yourself. Or yeah, you hate a lot of that. I mean, oh, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think all that stems from self-hate uh, eventually in a way because you come from pride and deep down it, it does come from hate of your own improvement I think is probably a better way to put it hate from your own improvement and the improvement of your community but that is another rabbit hole we can't go down all the rabbit holes we can't go down all the rabbit holes <laughs> we've only got so much time <laughs> yeah absolutely you know, it's, the rabbit hole though um, of this race thing I'm looking I think friendships honestly with me um, are getting smoother I think after this race thing because it did become you know a racial politics yeah country i mean talking to anyone my parents friends like it was all racial you know everyone was reading white fragility or everyone was just watching their facebook page for their next bit of information that they needed to then take in and then express to other people without thinking about it critically <laughs> just like regurgitation yeah and it was so interesting just this this massive amount of regurgitation you're just listening to people that are just in trance regurgitating what they heard from facebook it just got tiring and i think it's smoothing out now but at the same time reaching racial justice because i think there were there are things in america that in, could improve in terms of um you know those of different ethnicities than the majority the majority being white people right like i think there were poor lending practices um Though that's just from really people I trust and hearsay in that way. So I haven't read about that completely. You might be more educated than me on this, Ben. But yeah, yeah, no, there but, was there's like redlining. Um, right. You know, there's uh, you know un underfunding of like schools and you know in different neighborhoods um, that had been segregated by race. And, yeah. That's still like going that. on. It's but, still going on, and yeah. it's, what's annoying is no one actually wants to talk about the real answer. And the idea is, you know, you want to equalize spending across school districts, you know, you got to fix your school districts, right? And no one wants to do that because then you're taking money away from more affluent populations and you're going against the student union, which for Democrats is a no-go and for Republicans is a no-go, right? Neither party wants to do it, right. but you need to do both if you actually want to fix it, right? So right. the simple solution would be like, we're going to equalize spending, school spending across the state. Teachers yeah. Union wants nothing to do with that, um, and neither does the Republican Party because they've got a lot of wealthy districts and people pay good money 
to move into a good school district so that they can do right by their kids, yeah. as they should, right? They get mad, yeah. And so, or the other way you could go would be with charter schools, and that it would be to do performance-based funding of schools and give people the opportunity to choose better schools. Teachers Union wants nothing to do with that either. Um, you kind of need to do both, though. If you were actually wanted to fix a problem, you'd, you'd probably do both. No, no political group in the right mind is ever going to touch both of those at the same time. It's like licking uh, both ends of a battery, right? Like, you're just going to get zapped. You're not going to have a good time. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. So. No, that's, that's for sure. There's a, there's a lot of, I think, a lot of bitter pills in our society that we know what the right thing to do is, but no one wants to do it because it would anger their base politically. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a... That's a tough. Yeah, that's a tough discussion itself because then the wealthy people are the ones that worked hard for it are just all up in arms because they say, yeah. you, you, "You're taking this from me. I worked hard just for this reason." Yeah. Um, no, that's that's really tough. And yeah, equalizing it across the state would be would be ideal if we had the the money for it. And then there's the also the opinion added in where you know the church should take care of the poor. You know, if there's an issue with the poor, like let the church educate the poor, and it's. Where is the right decision and what bitter pills should we take? Yeah. Like the bitter pill of, this is probably another tangent, but the bitter pill of personal responsibility. I, I just don't see that anymore. I would like to propose like a, kind of like a theory as of to why things are the way they are in this country, though. Oh, to, I always love end. theories. I, I, I feel like a lot of this, the reason that we have a lot of pull towards this uh, socialism um, and communism within the country is that the, is because of a failing at the church level, because the church initially set up, you know, all the schools in the country and mm. all the hospitals, all the you know education like higher uh, institutions of higher learning as well within the country, food distribution for the poor, so like food pantries, SNAP, that kind of stuff. Those were all yeah. set up by Christian organizations, and slowly but surely, then the church started abdicating those things back to the state, uh, or not back to the state, they started abdicating those things to the state. So and now the hospital is is uh, subsidized by the government, and oh, now we're going to make it go private as well, right? So it's no longer a religious uh, thing. Oh, and, you know, all these, uh, you know, institutions and uh, mental health care facilities, the government's going to take them over, uh, and then they, they shut them down eventually. And then all these schools, oh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll start subsidizing them as well. Oh, and now it's, uh, now it's secularized, right? And uh, so on and so forth. And then at the end of it, then the government kind of got sick of doing these things or started doing a terrible job of maintaining those institutions, um, pushed them over to private enterprises. As a result, a lot of these things that people see coming out of like the Christian tradition of like care for the poor, valuing education, you know, caring for people's health that used to be the job of the church yeah. have completely disintegrated right into either for-profit institutions or been, um, I want to say cannibalized to the point where they're just not as effective as they, they used to be. Mm-hmm. And the church isn't picking that slack up again. No. Right. Because they, they don't have the resources to do it, or they don't have the will to do it. And uh, as a result, people are kind of like, well, 
we want, you know, daddy government to kind of come in and start fixing these things again. And it's kind of like, well, they never really fixed it to, to begin with, right? They, they kind of screwed it up the first time around. Okay. Maybe we need to get churches involved again with helping yeah. those failing institutions. Like insane asylums, I think. Were you the one that mentioned that to me? Yeah, that was, a, that was actually um, my father-in-law. He worked at one as a, as a social worker, and it was really hard um, because he was there when they closed one of them down, and he had to put some uh, people that he knew and loved very much uh, out on the street because if you imagine you know, somebody who has children with special needs, if you're a couple with like a special needs child and you, know, you don't have any other kids, or even if you do have kids, the divorce rate's really high. So now, let's say you're like 60 years old, your kid is aged out of all these services and support programs, and so you kind of get put them into this institution to get the help, and then you pass away. And so where's his social safety net? Like if you have, I mean, like his parents are dead. If they have brothers or sisters, you know, some of them are half brothers, half sisters. Some of them, you know, are not alive anymore or they're old as well. Or, you know, maybe they were an only child because it's really stressful on parents if they have a child with special needs. So maybe they decide not to have any additional kids. And so you've got this... 50-year-old functioning like a five-year-old getting kicked out of his home and with all the people he knows, and that's his new life on the street, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned how the church had abdicated all these services. and To the government. That's interesting. And then the government abdicated its role in that as well. And so... Yeah, to private individuals, private enterprise. And it's, you know, the church, I think... It's tough because that conversation is a, a church versus state conversation because the, um, the government would have to allow for that again because there's so many laws now against so many laws separating the two now. Um, unfortunately, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately. I don't know enough about it, but I do believe in the separation of church and state currently. Um, but that doesn't mean that separation means the church is powerless. The church can always build, you know, new programs. Even if we are canceled, like we can volunteer, we can donate our money Into to our local communities. But like nationwide, for us to like set up huge programs for the country, that's you know, when Jesus reigns again, I think that will happen again. It's not impossible. I mean, you think about like all these hospitals that were set up by churches in an age when they didn't even have the internet. Yeah. Right? And we have the internet now, so we can really kick some butt, I think. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, these people, when they, had, when they wrote a letter, they actually had to write a letter, right? <laughs> it, it took, like, weeks. I hate writing letters. And some dude had to, like, like, typing them, fold it up and put it in an envelope. And I don't even know if they had, like, the self-sealing envelope, so you had to, like, use wax on that thing. Or I don't know, whatever, right? And uh, Yeah, the seal. The fastest thing that moved back then was like a horse. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's crazy. And they got to build a hospital for like, you know, sick kids or an orphanage, right? You know, it's just like... Morals were strong back then, that's man. That's crazy, Christian man. morals, man. That's, they knew what to do. <laughs> you know, infant mortality rate was in like the 30% range or something like that. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. You know? That's also true. That is true. I, You know, I... 
I always dream that the church do more. Um, heck, I, tr- I dream that I do more to help others. Um, you know, maybe you, you know, maybe if we all do more to help others and you know, join in our local church, hold hands, and take on the plights of COVID and the the broken politics that we see today. Yeah, I agree. You know, if we as a church rise up and do that, I, w- I mean, I would love to see that on a nation, national scale, and it's creating more think, programs. I don't think COVID is a is a is a disease problem. I think COVID is a people problem. Dude, yeah. And so much, so much of what we're dealing with right now is just a people problem. People are the problem. That's true. No, we're also <laughs> the solution. Well, kind of are the problem. <laughs> hey, man, we're we're bad and we're good. Uh, well, I mean to say, you know, I got sin. We yeah. got sins. Yeah. We also got, you know, the image of God. I, I forget who said it, but there's this Christian theologian. He said the best argument against God is Christians. Oh, and yeah. The, and the best argument for God is Christians. Yep. So really, it's it's kind of like up to us. How, how are we living out our faith? Or are we living out our faith at all? So. Yeah. And, you know... Quote swapping now. I because that remind that's a perfect reminder of Gandhi's quote. I believe it was Gandhi though. Though you know, yeah. the, people misquote everyone nowadays. You could just say uh, Albert Einstein says all the most outrageous things. But uh, yeah, Gandhi said you know Christianity would be the perfect religion if it weren't for the Christians. It's th- it's the same thing. It's yeah. like the perfect argument for it and against it. Which the existence of Christianity itself it just breeds hope. I think in the heart, in the heart of all this. All right, all right. You want to be done? We've been we've been talking for a while. Um, yeah, I should probably work at some point. I feel like you should probably get back to work. <laughs> so thanks for making making a break in your day to to hang out with me, just have this conversation. And uh, yeah, any final thoughts? Now this was fun. I'd love to do it again and. Um, Maybe I'll be a bit more focused next time and there'll be less rabbit holes. I mean, some people like rabbit holes when they listen. If yeah. anyone is listening at all, you know, you know, we'll, we'll create more rabbit holes or less. Yeah. Just leave, leave a comment. <laughs> How do you podcasters do this? <laughs> like and subscribe. Yeah, exactly. You can, you can put that at the end of this. Thanks, man. I will. To follow up, it was great to just chat with my Christian friend about his take on the state of the world. I don't have a whole lot to add to this conversation, but did want to leave you with one final thought before closing out the podcast today, and that is this. Regardless of whether or not the definition of racism has changed, it's really hurtful to treat anyone differently simply because of appearances, and I think this applies for more than just skin color. I grew up in Southern California, the birthplace of cosmetic surgery, and there were two prevailing views on the subject in my hometown. One was that God created you as you are. He doesn't make mistakes. You are as he intended and everyone should be treated with dignity and respect. The other view was that looks matter, appearances matter, and if you can do something to make yourself look better and feel better about yourself, and you don't do it, well, you're doing yourself in the world a disservice. Now, there are merits to both of these arguments, but fundamentally, I'm more of a mindset that the world is a better place when we value people, not for their looks, but simply for the fact that God made us all in His image. With that said, I want to thank you for joining me today in this little social experiment. To continue the conversation, check out our app and connect with one of our volunteers, or invite someone in your circle of friends to have a God-centered discussion. If you like what you heard, please recommend it to a friend, and be sure to subscribe and give us a positive review in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps people find the show. 
As a bonus, I'll read a shout out to you in the next episode. And finally, if you're able to, please consider supporting this ministry financially. Until the end of October, we have a special matching opportunity where all donations can be triple matched up to $2,500. So check out the donate page on our website and prayerfully consider adding this ministry to your end of year giving. Coffee with a Christian is a registered 501c3, so all donations are tax deductible. Thanks again for checking us out. May God bless you and Christ be praised.